0: Well, this week, Cody and I uh, took a break from our office work and uh, traveled up to just a little north of Knoxville to have lunch with a, a pastor friend of ours. Now, if you've been around me, Corey, and Cody for more than a minute or two, um, you know that we have a very unique relationship. It's, uh, it's often less boss and employees and more like brothers, or, or maybe even better, it's kind of like A brother who's 15 years older than the younger brother and who gets kicks from picking on him endlessly. I can give you some of the pranks that we've done to one another if you want to know some of those. Um, It's a really enjoyable workspace, but uh, because of this relationship that we have, uh, we talk about pretty much everything. There are no restrictions. We are wide open to one another and we share maybe sometimes too much. We argue about sports. We just had a pretty heated text message discussion about March Madness the other day and um, maybe got angry a little bit, but we make fun of each other. We try to see who can one-up each other, pranks and, and, and comments and uh, insults and just guys behaving, sort of. Well, in our car ride, we somehow got into the discussion where I started to make fun of my mom a little bit and say that my mom loves to watch game shows. and, and in her quasi-retirement age, her favorite game shows are Let's Make a Deal and The Price is Right. And I started laughing at her, and I started making fun of my mom to Cody, and then I said, wait a minute. When I'm home, what do I do? I watch Let's Make a Deal and Price is Right. It's, It's entertaining. Who doesn't like watching those shows? I enjoy seeing people win, but in kind of a twisted way, I like to watch the people lose. I like to see their expression that they came in with nothing, and they're going to leave with nothing, so nothing lost. But if they would have just picked this, they would have had a $25,000 car. And to see the, the joy turn into the agony of defeat, it, there's kind of a twisted sense of humor in that. And, and the, 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 the reality is, is that they're picking between a little box on a table and a giant curtain. Right? Sometimes the contestant will get to trade. No, I don't think it's behind that curtain. I think it's behind curtain number three. The contestant really has no choice. There's no way for them to tell what's behind the curtain, whether it's a zonk or a a new car. But what if the contestant could see what was behind the curtain? What if there were no curtains or boxes? What if the contestant could see what they're choosing? Well, the whole point of the game show is for them to not know what they're choosing, which adds to the excitement and the drama. Of course, this would affect the game. No one would choose a zonk. No one would choose lawn furniture over a new car. The choices would be easy, and the game show wouldn't exist. This is what makes the game show the game show. But the truth is that life is a lot like let's make a deal. Now, stay with me on this. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We make choices every day that may or may not have any impact on the rest of our lives. We make good choices and we make bad choices. But I'll ask again, what would change if we could see the ultimate outcome of every choice that we make? We would make better choices. At least we hope we would. But haven't you wondered? And maybe in your own life you've faced this, you've seen this personally, that you wonder why is it that I make so many bad choices? Why is it that my son or my daughter, the adult son or daughter that I have, why is it that they keep making bad choices? We make good choices, we make bad choices. See, we have God's completed word, we have Christ, we we have all that we could ever need for life and salvation, and yet, and yet, we keep making bad choices, we sin, we know right from wrong, and we still struggle to make good choices. See, choices, both good and bad, are at the center of what's happening in Genesis chapter 13. And really, it's what's been happening throughout Abram's life as recorded in Scripture. In the chapter that we just read, we see Lot making a poor choice. And as Genesis unfolds, we see him making even worse choices. In chapter 12, we saw Abram making a really bad choice that if you read between the lines, it gets even worse. The fact that he lied about his wife being his sister and then his sister became part of the household of Pharaoh. Now you can kind of read between the lines there. He's giving away his wife. But then in chapter 13, In chapter 13 of Genesis, we see Abram making good choices to uh, worship God with a grateful heart and to be generous, especially to those who don't deserve it. Truth is, this passage is not just relegated to ancient history. Because the same things that we see over and over again in Genesis, yes, there's not going to be a worldwide flood ever again, but the same things that we see over and over happening in Genesis happen in our own hearts and in our own lives. Making decisions whether or not we're going to worship the Lord. Making decisions whether or not we're going to be obedient to God's commands. Making decisions whether or not we turn and repent when we make mistakes and we sin. Situations that we face every day. We don't have curtains blocking us. In fact, Abram worshiped God even though he didn't have the Messiah yet. It was still thousands of years before Jesus came, and he had no completed scripture. Abram was in reality making choices with at least some of his vision being blocked. We have all that we need we have the crucified and risen Messiah, we have the completed, inerrant, infallible Word of God. And we have the church to help us, to guide us, to teach us, to train, exhort, rebuke, and reprove us. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't need anything more than that. And yet, and you know this as well as I do, we still struggle, don't we, with making choices. In chapter 12... God called Abram to himself and to leave his home and to journey into a land that was promised to him, a land that he had never been to before. When Abram and his wife Sarai went into Egypt, Abram lied about who Sarai was, saying that he was his sister. Once the Pharaoh realized this, and he he was angry and at God's plagues, or or God had punished them and and sent some, some trials to Pharaoh, Pharaoh said, get out, so he sent Abram and his people away. Now, one thing we've seen in just a few short studies of Abram's life is that Abram was no superhero. In fact, Abram was just like every Christian. He tried to trust and he tried to obey God, but he couldn't do it enough. He made mistakes. He, he lied. He, 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 made, he made mistakes. He sinned. He did all of those things that we do every day, and he couldn't be perfectly faithful, and that's what God deserves. It's a story that we see repeated over and over. There is two common threads that run throughout the entirety of Scripture. One is the the sinfulness of humanity. Even the best of us are never good enough. That's the one thread that kind of runs through from Genesis to Revelation, but the other thread that covers that is the fact that we worship, and Genesis points us to, we worship a Messiah, the King, Christ. We worship him who fixes all of those problems. He covers that thread that runs through Scripture with his own thread that covers all of those things. That we see the sinful state of humanity over and over again in scripture and yet over and over throughout scripture we're constantly being pointed to the one who restores humanity back to its rightful creation state Jesus is the answer to these issues that Abram and Lot faced Abram is not the answer no one could do including Abram no one could do what was required of God so the story begins as this in verses 1 through 4. We see their journey. Abram and Lot, with all of their possessions, leave Egypt and make their way to the land that God appointed. Lot is the son of Abram's brother, and he is seen, as you read through Genesis, he's passive and he's foolish. Genesis 19 records the, amount of, uh, the account of Lot doing some really horrific things that uh, I'll leave Corey to preach about. He picked it. Um, showing his flaws to every person. Lot's not a good guy in a lot of ways. Well, Abram and Lot, as they're journeying out of Egypt, took uh, probably took the route of the Negev, a, a large desert region in southern Israel. And, and, and I think reading into this, that there's kind of a, a, the idea that Abram realized that he sins in Egypt, made a bad mistake. He probably carried that with him for a very long time, maybe the rest of his life. And as he's leaving Egypt, he's trying to rekindle or restore that relationship that he had with God. He wants to be in right fellowship. He wants to worship correctly. So how do we know this? It says in these verses that he returned to the altar where he first called on the name of the Lord. The old altar that Abram built was still standing there and I I don't think I'm reading into this so much that that altar is still there which means that Abram may have left the altar, Abram may have disobeyed God, but God still stands. Have you noticed this in your own life? I've had instances, big instances in my life where I realize that I've turned and I've gone in the opposite direction of what God wants me to do. And yet, when I realize that I'm at the pit and I'm at the lowest, I turn back, and God's still there. God hasn't given up on me. God hasn't turned his back away from me. The loving creator who promised me life is there to still restore me. And so this altar remaining is a sign of that. Now, there is a transitioning happening for the reader here. Flip back to chapter 12. And look at verse 10. The ESV reads this way. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Most translations use the word severe to describe this famine. Uh, Maybe yours says oppressive or grievous. In other words, to put it in simpleton terms that I need to know, it was bad and it was big. But in chapter 13, verse 2, that same word that was used to describe uh, uh, the famine is used to describe Abram's riches. It's the exact same Hebrew word. This is the author of Genesis telling us that we are supposed to see Abram's success in light of his previous failure. Always keep that in mind, that Abram's story is not just a rich man who just is successful at everything that he does. No, he is a man that lied and got his wife into a horrible situation. Abram's wealth, his livestock, silver and gold, probably came from Pharaoh, chapter 12. says that Pharaoh dealt well with him. And then lists what he had, sheep, oxen, donkeys, servants and camels. Now there are other parts of this passage that point us to other events in the life of Abraham and Israel. In verse three of chapter 13, we read that Abram journeyed On from the Negev as far as Bethel. The word that is used for journeyed is the same idea behind when the Israelites left out of Egypt. Abram's journey out of Egypt foreshadowed, it showed before, it foreshadowed Israel's journey out of Egypt, which foreshadowed the prophecy from Hosea about Jesus that says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Do you see how this is all working together? The beauty of Scripture is that it's not 66 independent books. It is a cohesive story, a message that if you pay attention, you start to see these commonalities between these different books and even within the books. So in verses 5 through 7... As we're going along in our text, we see that Abram is being tested. So he's left. He's left Egypt with Lot and their families. He's gone up to the altar that he built. He's worshiping the Lord correctly. And then he's faced with a test. There was some strife. Abram and Lot came to this land where they were supposed to go. And they they looked around and they saw that uh, there's not enough resources for both of them to stay. It even seems that based on Scripture, what we see is that their people were even fighting against one another. So you had Abram's servants and Lot's servants, and and they're fighting against one another. Uh, This sounds like every cowboy movie that you've ever seen, doesn't it? One group of cowboys with their herd comes, and another group comes, and there's land. There ain't enough land for both of us. So the six shooters start coming out, and we get a really good cowboy movie, right? Every every Western is exactly like this. Both Abram and Lot were very blessed men, weren't they? They had riches and resources. They had everything that the world valued. They had livestock, silver, gold, and people. But there was a problem that wouldn't go away. Now, I want you to see something happening here, this interpersonal relationship between Abram and Lot. They were relatives, There was strife. See, Abram made mistakes in Egypt, and then he was released and blessed. Then he travels back to the altar, and he worships God, and right after that, he finds himself in the middle of a family dispute over land. Humanity doesn't change. If you haven't figured this out yet, it's what happens to us all the time. I don't assume that any of you here own like a herd of cattle or a herd of livestock. But we do have resources. The best comparison that I can think of is what happens inside the local church. Now, we give because God commands us to be giving. He commands us to be generous to one another uh, and that we're not dominated by money. So we give a portion of what God gives us back to the work of the ministry so that seminaries can be funded, so that missionaries can be uh, funded, and so that the church can continue to thrive and reach people. But suppose for a second that someone outside of our church decided to give us, and I would love this, but they decided to give us a check for $10 million. A church that I've served in previously had a check from someone who wasn't part of the church, and he wrote a check out for $1 million to the church. So suppose we get 10 million. And we're here at a business meeting, And I announce, hey, we've got $10 million now. We're gonna hug each other and cheer and run up and down. People are gonna think that we're a Pentecostal church and we're gonna be doing somersaults and throwing people up in the air and screaming and crying and all that stuff, right? But what what's gonna happen when when I ask this question? Well, what do we do with it? What do we do with ten million dollars? Some people will say, well, we need to give it all away to the poor. We need to fund some resource place to, to help poor people and people who are down on their luck and awesome. Some people will say, well, man, we've got, and as a staff, we know this, we've got air conditioning units that keep going out, it seems like almost weekly. Well, we need to, we need to replace those, and we need to, to replace the building. Let's tear it all down and build it back up again and build the, the shining, you know, crystal cathedral of Alcoa, Tennessee, Others will want to hire new staff, not replace staff, but just new ones on top of what we already have. The truth of the matter is that if we were given a check for $10 million, we would have a problem because we wouldn't be able to agree on what to do with that. Do you see how a blessing becomes problematic? God gives us gifts and we fight about what to do with them. Rather than taking what we have and moving forward together, we often pull ourselves in a hundred different directions. And for Abram and Lot, they could have figured out a way to combine forces. They could have figured out a way to, to make it work. Their family, they should care about each other. But instead, their prosperity split them apart. Verse 7 There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And what would happen if they had nothing? If they didn't have the resources, uh, you, you may think back to Ruth and Naomi who, who lost everything and, and they, they pulled together tighter and they, they said that I'm not going to leave you. We're going we're to be in agreement. We're going to walk together in one accord. Maybe you've experienced loss in your family where it's brought you together, it's forced you to come together, I, I, I've seen it where a, a parent loses a child and, and those f- husband and a wife, they have to, to survive, they have to pull together. The truth is, First Baptist Akoa has been through some difficult times. And what did you do? You pulled together. You didn't sit and argue about the color of the carpets or which bush we should plant out front. Right? You banded together, you surrounded one another with love and affection and care. And the fact is that churches that endure seasons of loss and suffering often come out better in the end. But when there is no suffering or struggle, division always finds a way in. Call it a first world problem where we fight about stuff that's really not essential. And in a in a political sense, we fight over a, a half a percent sales tax increase, when or, or what to name a street, or what to do with some kind of picture on a wall, and and yet there are millions of people who are just trying to find something to eat, right? Perhaps this is why Christianity is declining in the Western world and in third world countries, Christianity is exploding. We cling to the truth and teach each other. Uh, and, and to each other when we're at the bottom. When we're prosperous, we often fight meaningless battles and can't find consensus. See, the story of Abram is that he just left his mountaintop experience. He worshipped God. Maybe it was like what we have when we go to summer camp and we come back and we're we're on a high for Jesus that quickly fades away. Reality hits. And so Abram, you can picture this, he he goes up to the mountain, he he has this worshipful experience at the altar, and then he comes back down, and now he's faced with, well, our guys are fighting with each other, and me and Lot, we're not getting along too well. That's a bummer. For Abram, the reality was that he and Lot had a problem, but look at verses 8 and 9. We see Abram's generosity. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the the right hand, then I will go to the left. This could have been explosive. These two could have gathered up their people. Now the other people were down in the valley, but they could have gathered up their people and and where they were standing, they just started a, a war between each other. But Abram said this, he said, we're family. Let's not be like Cain and Abel. Let's not be like them. Let's figure out some way to make this work. Abram was generous to Lot. He wasn't distracted from worship by his possessions. His experience in Egypt probably made him rethink what really matters. He wasn't consumed by wealth or prosperity. He sought peace, especially in his own family. He was even the recipient of God's promises. He he could have said this to Lot. Lot, it's me, not you. God promised me. He didn't promise you. You're going to submit to what I want. This is my land. But instead, he says this. He says, Lot, I'll let you decide. You want the right, I'll take the left. You want the left, I'll take the right. You decide. And in chapter 12, just a few verses before our text today, Abram was a liar, someone who lied because he thought it was protecting himself from harm. So what happened? In Egypt, he was forced to examine his own heart, and he responded by worshiping God. He sinned. He recognized his own sin. He traveled to the altar that he built to worship God. In other words, God changed Abram's heart. God let him. He allowed him to get to the bottom, to get him to the pit, so that Abram could see the need to be focused on the truth of God's message to him. God changed his heart. Jesus said that Abram, Abraham rejoiced the day that he would see Christ. Abraham, who is Abram, in this act of kindness and sacrifice to Lot was a foreshadowing of Christ. Listen to Paul's words in Philippians 2. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Just like in your life, when you deny yourself, when you deny what you want, and you share what you have with others, you are bringing glory to God. Abram had every right legally and even spiritually to claim that land as his and his alone. He had every right to kick Lot out of that land. He didn't have to be nice to Lot. He didn't have to give him anything. Now the question is, kind of pulling us back like what I said earlier with the thread that runs through scripture of the gospel. Do you see the gospel here? There are some passages in the Old Testament that are easy to see the gospel and others are difficult. This one's an easy one. Do you recognize that you and I are in the same position as Lot? Spiritually speaking, we deserve nothing. We deserve no love, no mercy, no grace from God. Our sin has caused a rift between us and our creator. And there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to repair that rift. There was nothing Lot could do either. The only way that Lot could have been given anything is by Abram's grace and mercy toward him. And our case is the same. Sin has separated us from God, but God has still, to his people, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. God has every right to wipe us away, to start over, but instead he chose to make us his people, a chosen people in the world, to be his people, separated and distinct. We are a shining city on a hill. We are a spotlight, shining glory on God's grace. God gave us grace when we deserved none. The gospel is happening in Genesis 13 when Abram granted unmerited grace to Lot. When we believe that Christ is the Messiah and when we come to God and say, I know I've sinned, I've broken your commandments, I haven't lived for you, but here, here's my life. I give you everything. You know what happens? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. Not some. Not part. Not most. All. It means our slate is clean. Abram could only show grace to Lot regarding property, but God wipes our slate clean. Every sin that we've ever committed, every bad thought that we've ever had, every unkind word that we've ever said is nailed to the hands and feet of Christ. The penalty that you and I earned is wiped clean by the spilled blood of Christ. That belongs to you if you are a follower of Christ. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer, this is what gives you life. Cling to it. Sing about it. Pray about it. Tell people about it. Scream it if you want. This is life for us. But the story of Abram and Lot doesn't end with this unmerited grace. It continues in verses 10 through 13, where we see the men separate. Look at these verses. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So you can kind of picture this happening. These two guys are up on top. They can can see for miles and miles, and they look down, and, and Lot... His eyes are drawn to what looks good. He sees green in the desert. He sees buildings and people. He sees people coming in and coming out of the city. He he can see movement. He, he sees life. It's energized. It, it, it's exciting. Abram had given him a choice. He could go east or he could go west. Now remember the direction that Cain went in Genesis chapter four? Which direction did he go? He went east. The author of Genesis is reminding us of what happened to Cain after he killed his brother. It's, It's happening again, isn't it? Lot looks down. He sees the bright lights of Sodom. The land looked good. People were prosperous. The allure was too much for him to ignore. Just as we do today, he looked with his eyes. He didn't look with his spirit. He, he looked with his eyes. Wh- wh- whatever it was that was attractive is what he wanted. Lot thought that he saw a future there. Many of us think that we see a future in certain relationships or certain places or certain things, whatever it may be. And we look down at the valley and, and it's, we're looking with our eyes. We're looking at, man, that's That's nice without thinking through what's really down there. And if you don't know the story, keep reading in Genesis, you'll see that Sodom is not a nice place to be. And they don't suffer a very good ending either. As this was all unfolding, we see no mention of God speaking. It's just Abram and Lot talking until verse 14. So after Lot makes his decision, listen to what God says. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are At Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Abram was being gracious to Lot, and he probably didn't anticipate what God would say. He was standing at a point where he could see for miles, and God says, "This, that's yours." God also repeats the word offspring, meaning that somehow, because Sarai still has not been able to conceive, she was old and she was barren, and so He keeps saying, "Offspring, you and your offspring, you and your offspring." So that promise is there, that Abram will have a child. He will be the father of many nations. In verse 17, God tells Abram to walk the land that he has given to him. In the ancient world, um, this would have been a symbolic act of legal ownership. Now, if we sell property, there has to be deeds signed, surveyors. They have to measure the property. They come out and use fancy equipment to say how many feet or inches or acres this is. And we go through a legal process of sale, and it takes an amount of time. In the ancient world, what someone would do is if they sold a piece of property, he would just walk it. It's kind of convenient, isn't it? Can't do that now. But once he would walk over that property, it was his. He would take steps over all of that land, and now that land belongs to him. And you can see this as every step that Abram takes. He's watching. He's looking around, and he's remembering that promise that God made to him that this land is mine. And we look at the situation between Abram and Lot, and we can see pretty clearly who made the right decisions. Abram followed God, and Lot followed his flesh. It would be easy for me to come and tell you, and maybe you've heard sermons like this or lessons. It would be easy for me to come and say, well, guys, just be like Abram. It's pretty easy. Don't make stupid decisions. Don't look with your eyes. Look with the Spirit. Don't be stupid. Be like Abram, right? Now I don't want to downplay the importance of good decisions. I also, uh, you need to make good decisions. I, that's one thing I do plead with you. Please make good decisions. The truth is, though, that making bad decisions will be disastrous. Abram chose wisely, and he enjoyed the fruit of his decisions. But that shouldn't satisfy you, because I'm... I get, I know, because I can think of it in my own life, and I know you can in yours, where you've made good decisions and it still ended up poorly for you. You decided to be truthful and honest about something and you were burned. You tried to love someone as best you could and that person rejected you. We've all made good decisions and been hurt by them. Abram was not perfect, but listen, he had faith in the one who is. The point of this is not the amount of land or livestock or servants. The entire point of this passage, the entire point of the entire Bible is that Abram had faith and he believed in the coming Messiah. Couldn't quite see him, but he knew he was coming. I remember as a child, and maybe you do too, being told that the people in the Old Testament were saved because they obeyed the law. So you kind of look at this this way. Well, Old Testament people, they had to be good. God saved them. And then when Jesus comes, we trust in Christ and then we're saved. And I was taught that. The problem is that I knew my own heart well enough to know I'm not good enough. I can't be good enough. I can't behave enough. Romans 4 says this. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, being good, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? How did Abraham get saved? How did he come to know Christ? He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You can switch your name for Abraham and it still makes sense. If you could obey enough or do enough good, then you would be the one worthy of praise. Do you see this? If you were good enough, then it's you that we need to worship, not God. You would be the one who was good enough to please God on your own. You'd be a special person indeed. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Those who are working to earn salvation will find that no matter how much good they do, it is never enough. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You and I are no different than Abram. Our sin convicts us before God. We stand guilty because we've done things that have in our hearts taken God off his throne and we've replaced him with someone or something else. Standing before God with your own good works and saying here's what I've done is like someone who robs a bank but then says in his defense, well hey, I gave away some of that to the poor people down the street. You're still guilty. in his eyes What he did was a good thing and our good works put a fresh coat of paint on a house that's infested with termites and rodents every person who drives by sees it and they see wow that looks like it's a nice house wow that's beautiful not realizing that when you open the door you fall down into the basement the house is worthless the house is not and can't live in it If you're not a Christian, if you don't have faith in Jesus as the Messiah and King, then all you're doing is covering up and patching holes with a fresh coat of paint. You may get people to believe that you're doing well, that you're a good person, that you you do good things, but the truth is that inside your heart is dead. You are in desperate need of a rebuild. And the question that comes to you here today and the question that Abram, I am certain that he asked himself when he left Egypt is, am am I in need of a rebuild? Am I tired of living with a figurative mask on? We're all tired of living with literal masks. But am I tired of living with this figurative mask on? Are you tired of faking it? The only solution, and this is all that I know, All I know is Christ and him crucified. Come to Jesus. Come to the one who promises the weary rest. Come to the one who can remove the stain of guilt. Run to the one whose death has given us life. See, Christian, Abram is a life worth admiring. But he had a sin problem just as much as you and me. Without faith, Abram stood guilty and condemned before God. He had no way of earning it. But he had faith that God always keeps his promises. He had faith that he could not save himself, so he joyfully awaited the day that the Savior would come, and Jesus says he did. He celebrated it. He rejoiced. Do you rejoice over what God has done for you? What fills your heart and mind when I talk about Jesus? Are you grateful? Does the grace and mercy of God that he's given to you, come out in your relationships to others. This passage, whether you realize it or not, this passage is a direct line, a pointer to Jesus. Abram was a good man. He did good things, but good doesn't save anyone. No matter how good Abram was, it didn't save him. It couldn't. I pray that this passage is a constant reminder, not so much of Abraham's goodness, but the perfection of Jesus and the grace and mercy that he gives to those who trust in him. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for everything that you've